I wanted to tackle two subjects today uh, dealing with the nature of Scripture, and that is the clarity of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture, uh, knowing that Scripture is both clear and that it is complete or sufficient for our lives, really. Um, there is another word for the clarity of Scripture. It's an older word. It's called the perspicuity of Scripture, that Scripture is perspicuous. Um, the word perspicuous is not that perspicuous, so we'll use the word clarity. Okay, It's a little bit easier for us to understand. But it really, this whole issue boils down to, can we understand our Bibles? Uh, who can understand the Bible? I mean, some of the relevant questions that we might ask about the, cl the clarity of Scripture is, uh, is the meaning of Scripture clear? Do we know what Scripture teaches, especially regarding essential matters of the Christian faith? Do you have to know Greek and Hebrew to really say that you know the Word of God? I mean, oftentimes I've talked to Muslims who, uh, who will tell you, well, you don't know what the Quran is really saying because you don't, you don't know Arabic. And so, you know, and I often come back and say, well, what good, is a, what good is God's word if we can't understand it in other languages? You know what I mean? So that kind of is a undermining both on the clarity, let's say, of the Quran and the sufficiency of the Quran. It seems like we need to have a constant interpreter with us or else we won't be able to understand what the word of God means according to Islam. But Scripture is quite different. We do believe that Scripture is clear and that we can know exactly what the Word of God teaches, especially regarding the essential matters of the Christian faith. Now, I think we should make a, a, a qualification, right? Not everything is as clear as everything else. I mean, there are some things in Scripture that are more clear than other things in Scripture. Some things in Scripture, let's be honest, are really hard to understand, I mean, Peter said that himself in 2 Peter chapter 3, talking about Paul's writing. He says some of the things that the Apostle Paul wrote are difficult to understand. So don't feel as if, wow, well, there are certain uh, chapters or verses or there are certain doctrines that are really difficult for me to understand. Uh, but that is not an infringement upon the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. Let me read to you what Wayne Grudem uh, uh, said and how he defined it. He says, the clarity of Scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that, it, that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read and read it and seeking God's, who will read it seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. He goes on to say, once we have stated this, however, we must also recognize that many people, even God's people, do in fact misunderstand Scripture. So again, I mean, that really boils down to, okay, so what are we saying that we can understand in Scripture? Well, what we're saying that we can understand in Scripture is that all things that pertain to knowing God and to be saved, to have salvation, uh, in the, and, and to obey God or do what He requires, those are the things that are absolutely clear. Uh, you get into maybe more finer points of theology in any given subject, and it, it can become very perplexing. And we know that as Christians, we make errors with Scripture. I mean, that's why you have Baptists. That's why you have Presbyterians. That's why you have Wesleyans. That's why you have Methodists. Because we disagree about certain interpretations on certain matters of Christian doctrine. Someone is wrong. And uh, when we get to heaven, we'll know who was wrong on what. 
it's going to be really amazing, isn't it, to walk around going, man, I told you, R.C. Sproul, you know, you don't baptize babies, you know. <laughs> you know, all the eschatology guys are going to be, you know, pointing. Someone's going to have all their fingers pointed at them, right? Uh, we're all going to find out who was right and who was wrong on all doctrinal matters. But today we can know because Scripture teaches its own clarity. Uh, maybe turn with me to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Obviously, this is a classic passage on dealing with this subject right here, and it really looks ahead to the sufficiency of Scripture as well. But 2 Timothy 3, beginning of verse 16, says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So not only does it say that the man of God is equipped, meaning that it's the word of God is so sufficient that really the man of God is not lacking anything uh, because of the sufficiency of Scripture, but it's also clear in that it presupposes that the word of God is profitable. Now, if something wasn't clear, how could it be profitable? If the word of God is so cryptic, if the hidden, if the meaning of Scripture was so hidden, then the teaching of Scripture would not profit us. It wouldn't be profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We would go to Scripture and not know how to conduct ourselves, let's say, in the ministry. We would go to Scripture and we wouldn't know how to discern between right and wrong if it wasn't clear. But uh, all Scripture is profitable. And uh, even beyond that, you know, let's be honest, in, in the church and in Christendom, there are just some people who excel and who are just extremely gifted theologically, right? I mean, we have uh, theologians. I mean, I looked to theologians to put this lesson together. I, I went to Robert Raymond. I went to, I went to Burkoff. I went to Bevink. I went to Grudem. And I read their chapters on, on this section. And that's because I take those guys to be experts. I think they are much more gifted than I am at theology. So I go to them. They're my teachers. Um, but, you know, the Bible teaches that God doesn't just reveal the word of God to the, to, the, to the scholar, right? Far be it from that. The scripture actually teaches that God reveals his word even to the naive, even to the simple-minded. Um, maybe some scriptures on this. Psalm 19 verse 7 the law of the lord is perfect reviving the soul the testimony of the lord is sure making wise the simple focus on that word simple because psalm 119 verse 130 says the same thing the unfolding of your words gives light it imparts understanding to the simple the question is who is the simple <laughs> right a very gracious way of saying, you know, certain people happen to be more naive, certain people happen to show uh, that they lack wisdom or that they lack discernment, but the, but the hopeful thing is this, this is what's encouraging, is that no matter where you are on the spectrum of theological discernment, the encouraging thing is that the Word of God has the potential of making one wise, even the simple, even the person. As a matter of fact, that Hebrew word, petty, simple, 
uh, one lexicon defined it as saying that it speaks of a simple, naive person. It speaks of people that are easily deceived or persuaded, showing lack of wisdom and understanding, yet, this is very important, yet having the capacity to change their condition. That's beautiful. How do they change their condition? Well, at least in this context, it is the word of God that makes the simple wise. That's so beautiful. You know, I mean, I just was talking to a girl at UNT that was going to a bad church. And I'm thinking in my mind, okay, you know, she's falling for some really bad doctrine, you know. And uh, so I directed her maybe to a better church. I told her to come visit ours, you know, but... I told her, look, there's much, much better churches out there. You know what I mean? Go to a church finder, you know, go to Nine Marks. You know, I directed her to the places we would direct people, all in hopes that right now, she, you know, she would go from that position of being a, a simplicity, in simplicity, and become much more of a discerning person, you know, much pure doctrine, you know, a much pure church. I think that's so important. Um, Wayne Grudem says here about the simple person, he says, it is, he says, the simple person is not merely somebody who lacks intellectual ability, he says, but one who lacks sound judgment, who is prone to, to making mistakes and who is easily led astray. God's word is so understandable, so clear, that even this kind of person is made wise by it. This should be a great encouragement to all believers. No believer should think himself or herself too foolish to read scripture and understand it sufficiently to be made wise. And that's the glorious thing about being a Christian, right? As opposed to, let's say, being a Catholic. You know, especially in Catholicism, you know, they had the, a theology that, oh, no, if you want to gain the wisdom of Scripture, if you want to profit from Scripture, then you need to go to the priesthood. You need to go to the mass. You need to have the priest explain it to you. You need to have the, the, the pope and the, the bishops and the councils. They will interpret Scripture for you and, uh, uh, and made it so that really the, the, the meaning of Scripture was inaccessible to the average person. And that was really part of the Protestant Reformation. The whole point of the Reformation was to say, look, everyone has the, everyone is a priest to his God, right? Uh, Luther was real big on the priesthood of all believers. We each stand before our God. We each have the word of God in our hand, or we should. We each have the ability through the agency of the Spirit to interpret the word of God sufficiently. And uh, it was actually, it was actually, uh, uh, Wycliffe, who who was adamant that every every plowboy, you know, every farmer boy in the land should have the word of God in his hand and should be able to interpret the word of God for himself. You know, as I'm preaching a sermon, you have the Bible in your hand because you have discernment. God has given you discernment so that you can understand uh, uh, the word of God and discern whether you know Pastor Emilio is preaching right or preaching wrong. You know. Come tell me if I preach something wrong. Hopefully, I'll try to repent and do it better next time. But uh, turn with me to 1 John, just maybe one example of this. But 1 John chapter 2, maybe a relevant passage of Scripture, especially dealing with all believers, okay? 1 John chapter, chapter 2 says, uh, in verse 26, says, These things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for, as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. That's an amazing statement. 
But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. What is that passage of scripture saying there? I mean, I know that we have to interpret it and we have to, uh, we have to limit it to some degree, right? I mean, saints, look, he says he will teach you and you will, and, and he teaches you about all things. I mean, so first we have to determine is what is the anointing? It says you have an anointing. What is that? Anybody want to? I've spoken about this before. What's that? The Holy Spirit. Okay, the Holy Spirit. Right? Everybody agree with that? It's the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the anointing. Okay. Well, that's how that's how most people would interpret it, and they would say, yeah, it is is the either the Holy Spirit or the work of the Spirit. You know what I mean? But yes, ultimately the Spirit is the source of our anointing and we know what kind of anointing he's talking about based on the context that this anointing is uh, is is dealing with illumination the ability to understand the this anointing is the is being endowed with understanding so that we understand all things now the context is very clear he is speaking about those who are trying to deceive the church so the context is that the spirit's work is such that through this anointing, as believers, genuine believers in Christ, we have the ability to discern right doctrine from wrong doctrine, heretical doctrine, I would say, heresy from orthodoxy. So I believe if you're genuinely a believer, you've probably heard testimonies, right, of people that were in false doctrine. Maybe they were even in a cult. I mean, I had a friend way back in the day uh, in my, when I was taking biblical Greek, Koine Greek, I had a, I had a lady in our class she was saved in the Mormon church, and she stayed in the Mormon church for about a year. She thought it was a Christian, <clears throat> and she claims to this day that she was converted, she, she repented, she, she was born again in the Mormon church, but it took time for her to leave the Mormon church. You know, my mother-in-law, Marlene, she's always praying for exodus out of the false churches, you know? Well, she did. She finally left the false church. You know, the Mormons try to get her and... You know, they tried. They, they were they were hounding her and 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 uh, stalking her almost. Anyway, she's got a wild testimony. You know, they didn't want to leave her. They didn't want to let her leave. You know what I mean? They were like, you know, going after her. You know, well, who's t who's who's teaching you these things? You know, so by God's grace, she left. You know, and she's now in the truth. But that's because she had an anointing from God, from the Holy One, from the Spirit that was teaching her. Right. She didn't have an apologist that was sitting there teaching her, exposing Mormonism to her. She's just reading the Bible. And she's like, hey, this doesn't line up. You know, this is not what I'm reading here. You know, God was never a man. And, you know, men are not going to become gods. You know, something's wrong here. So she was comparing the Book of Mormon to the Bible and realizing this isn't jive. You know, so I believe that if you are truly saved, you will come out of heresy eventually. I believe Catholics are saved. I believe there are many Catholics that are born again, saved, that need to leave the Catholic Church. It is possible for somebody to identify themselves as a Catholic and be born again and yet be deceived and need to come out of deception. You know, and that's what the clarity of Scripture is all about, is saying, look, each individual person has enough discernment to know when something is right or wrong. Um, I would say the scripture is so clear that anybody can interpret it to a certain degree, right? I mean, we know the story of Noah. If you give the Bible to any unbeliever and they read the story of Noah, they're going to know the story of Noah 
is about God flooding the world, commanding a man named Noah to build an ark, telling him to get inside, and saving him and his family. Okay, they're going to know that, right? But are they going to make all of the theological connections and how that points to Christ and his salvation and how God is the redeemer and how God is beginning a new humanity through Noah and that God made a covenant with Noah that was ultimately fulfilled in Christ? You know, will they do all of that? Probably not. Probably not. As a matter of fact, you let a non-believer talk long enough about the word of God. It's not long until you hear, hear heresy. Where you, you'll see where they get it wrong, where they go off the path. Uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, because what we're not saying about the clarity of Scripture is that everyone and anyone can discern Scripture the same way. Again, an unbeliever at some point will falter, will fail to interpret the, the Word of God correctly. And that's why they will twist the Scriptures, as Peter says, they'll twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. I mean, the scribes and Pharisees had the word of God in their hand. They had the word, they had the law, but they were misinterpreting it because they didn't see Christ. They didn't see Christ. They missed it, right? So he said, you missed your day of visitation. You know, so uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 14 and 16. Somebody want to read that for us? Someone, someone there already? No? Which verses? John. 14 through 16? Yes, sir. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But we have the mind of Christ. And you know what's so amazing about that text? Man, I tell you what, you just want to be blown away. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2. I mean, really spend time looking, pouring over these two chapters. It is absolutely amazing. If you go back, is everybody there, 1 Corinthians chapter 2? If you go back to chapter 6, okay, for example, you go back to chapter 6, what you understand here is that uh, chapter 2, verse 6, yes, sir, that's right. In verse 6, what we see here is that God is revealing his wisdom. And here, he calls it his hidden wisdom. So he says, we do speak wisdom among those that are mature. What does that mean? Those that are mature. So he just selected a group in the church that were mature, and to them he gave them wisdom? No. The word mature here is probably synonymous to a believer, to a believer, somebody who is mature in salvation. Okay? He says, he says a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. This is just amazing. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I mean, right there we're being taught two things. That at some point, the carnal man, the natural man, the immature man, doesn't know God's wisdom because he doesn't have God's spirit. And he's not able to discern what it is that God has revealed. And in the context of chapter 1 and chapter 2, who is the unwise man? Who is the immature man? Who is the natural man? It's the Jews and the Gentiles. It's the Jews and the Greeks. It says the Jews, they just seek a sign. Greeks, they're just looking for wisdom. And you've got to understand there, when he says wisdom, he's talking about worldly wisdom. World, wisdom emptied of the wisdom of God, right? Which is worldly wisdom. Uh, philosophy. 
They want to go back to Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. They want to go back to forms and they want to go back to accidents and they want to go back to all of these philosophical concepts that they think interpret what reality is, but they're wrong. They're wrong about that. They never, as 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse uh, 21 says, well, that was a long, that, that, that took a while, right? That was me trying to find the verse, sorry. Verse 21, for since in the, wisdom of the, uh, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. That's amazing. But you know what's amazing about that? Is he's talking about Jews. <laughs> Don't the Jews have the word of God? Yes, but because the Jews reject the word of God, as Jesus say, they prefer the commandments of men to the word of God. The Catholic Church has the word of God. They have the word of God in their possession, but they prefer the traditions of man to the commandments of God. And that's why it doesn't profit them. That's why, at the end of the day, it's equivalent of being in the world, being pagan. Uh, and that's what Paul says in the book of Galatians. He equates Judaism to paganism. It's just amazing, you know. But God has revealed this to us. We, we are not the natural man. We understand the, the wisdom of of God, the things that He has revealed in the gospel, in the cross, because we have this anointing. We have the mind of Christ, as Paul says here, so that we can understand God's word. So I don't want to say that, you know, the word of God is clear, and that means that everybody understands it equally the same. No. If you're not a Christian, eventually you will not be able to interpret the word of God accurately. You have to have the Spirit of God aiding you in your interpretation of Scripture, I think, to faithfully understand what the Scripture teaches. Any questions on the clarity of Scripture before we move on to the sufficiency of Scripture? You see that? I mean, don't we see that in our own lives, right? Family members that you're witnessing to or try to evangelize, you give them the Bible. They say, I've read the Bible. And then a lot of times it comes back with, you know, there's a lot of things I don't agree with about what it says, you know. Yeah, I have questions about this. You know what I mean? It's because they don't understand how to interpret the Word of God. They twist it to their own destruction. You know, right now with the, you know, this Noah movie that just came out, everybody's asking questions about Noah and the Ark and how is that possible. And, you know, there's scientific proof that refutes all of that, you know. And there's people just twisting the Word of God to their own destruction. But... Scripture is not only clear, but Scripture is also sufficient. So let me give you some verses about the sufficiency of Scripture, at least that teach us that because Scripture is sufficient, Scripture is final. Scripture is complete. Scripture is closed. The canon is closed, in other words. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. You shall not add to the word which I'm commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So there, all the way back to Deuteronomy 4.2, the principle of not adding to Scripture. Some say, well, how did we add the New Testament then? Oh, because the New Testament is Scripture. <laughs> it doesn't claim to be anything less, you see. Uh, Proverbs verse 30, verse uh, 30, verse 6, do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. A classic, classic um, uh, instance of that is just every other world religion, right? Catholics say, well, in the Council of Trent, we added the Apocrypha to the Bible. 
we added 13 extra books to the closed canon that had been closed for 1,500 years. They officially, at the Council of Trent, added it to their Bible. So now if you go down to the bookstore here, go to Mardell's, and you pick up a Catholic Bible, okay, it's going to have the Apocrypha inside. And they regard it as scripture. And uh, what's the problem? Well, God proved them to be liars. Because when you look at the Apocrypha, in many places it contradicts the Bible, it contradicts already revealed scripture, and it makes historical error. Historical error. So, yes, ma'am. Proverbs 30, verse 6. And then, of course, Revelation 22, 18. He says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anybody adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. So the unanimous testimony of scripture is that scripture is complete and cannot be added to. Whatever is revealed as scripture can never be amended or added to. Um, but the sufficiency of Scripture is really something that is uh, under constant attack. It is attacked in the church. It is attacked in the world. It is attacked when the church tries to bring the world into the church. It is attacked, attacked by pastors in their preaching. It is attacked in pastors by their ministry methodology. It is attacked all over the place. It is attacked by Christian counselors. Okay, when they try to bring psychology into the, into the church, things like that. The sufficiency of Scripture is really important because it is Scripture and Scripture alone that makes the man of God competent, going back to Second, or, uh, Second Timothy 3.16. It is what makes us competent, complete, adequate for every good work. Um, it's like uh, James White once uh, debating a Catholic. He said, he said name, name one thing. That, that the man of God lacks without the Apocrypha. One thing that he lacks, if you take the Apocrypha away, nothing. That's because Scripture makes him adequate, makes him complete. And that's true for everything, for ministry and for everything. Burkhoff says that we don't need further tradition as with Rome, and we do not need any inner light as with the Anabaptists. So the sufficiency of Scripture has always sort of uh, been attacked on these two lines. Either some sort of external word, some, some, some sort of external activity, or some, some, some sort of internal activity, some sort of subjective and internal word that is added to Scripture. We'll get to maybe the forms of that. There's a question back there first, Mike. Yeah, Milo, could you explain yes, sir. to me exactly the two lines, what they represent? The two lines? The two lines. The two lions or lines? Oh, lions. No, lines. Oh, lines. These two lines, are, these two trajectories, okay, of, of, <laughs> of either Rome that was given to the traditions of man or the Anabaptists historically that were given to esoteric experience and things like that. Yes, sir? It, I think you just touched on what I was going to ask you. What, so what do we say with all these people running around saying, God told me, God told me, God told me this, God told me that? Yeah, I mean, unless you, unless you complete the sentence with a chapter and verse, then you don't know that God told you anything, you know what I mean? Because you don't have an infallible way to determine that. Uh, and your subjective notion of that, you know, uh, I think there's better, more responsible language. Because we don't want to go so far over to this side 
so that we conclude that God no longer is involved in our lives, no longer leads us by His Spirit, right? No longer communicates to us through through this, the Spirit's work of conviction and illumination and things like that. But we don't, I personally do not even, I would probably never utter the word God told me unless it was in the Bible. Yes, ma'am. That's what you just said. Okay. Okay. Yeah. If, so because it's, it's. It would be more like if you're if you when you tell someone that the Lord um, compelled you. Yeah. That would be proper. Yeah. Language. Maybe more responsible way of talking about it. You know what right. I mean? Because when you say God told me, right. what you're saying is that you have heard the voice or the word of God. You know what I mean? And you have to determine, what are you saying by that? You know what I mean? Because when you go to the Bible, the only people hearing God's voice, hearing God's word, okay, is people that hear it in an infallible way, in a way that's inspired, in a way that is, you know, supernatural. You know what I mean? So uh, that's the difference, you know? So this kind of opens up the whole can of worms, you know, whether the charismatic gifts, especially the gift of prophecy and things like that, gift of tongues, you know, those types of things. And when people are saying that they just, let's say they receive a word from the Lord. You know, that's probably one of the grossest examples of that. But I mean, Wayne Grudem himself, who is charismatic, who does believe in the charismatic gifts, you know, he would say that the word of God, you know, is sufficient for everything. And that he goes on, I'll quote him in a, I'll indict him in a little bit here, but <laughs> I'll show how that he goes on to talk about, you know, basically that the word of God needs, needs nothing else. That we that that everything that we need, God tells us for salvation, and for trusting Him, and for obeying Him perfectly. Everything. That's it. So so you know a lot of times people say they got a word from the Lord. Okay, it usually has to do with some direction, determining God's will, obeying God in something. Okay, but according to you know Mr. Charismatic himself here, you know he's saying Scripture gives us everything we need in order to obey Him. Perfectly, you know, so it sounds like we're not going to be deficient in any way as long as we go by this, you know, and so the sufficiency of scripture is very important then. Uh, but what about what about the passages of scripture that talk about tradition? First, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, verse fifteen. It says, "So brethren, this is Second Thess two fifteen." says, so brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letters from us. So how do we, how do we interpret that? How do we wrestle with that? And here, Paul is seemingly appealing to this word paradosis, which is the word traditions, not the word scripture. So he's, he's definitely saying that there was scripture, excuse me, tradition in circulation. The question is, is what is that tradition? What is that tradition? Anybody? It shows at least that tradition is not bad, for sure. Yeah. If you want to start putting constraints around things, we could say at least we know it's not bad to have tradition and to follow tradition. Uh -huh. Like which but ones? Traditions of the church, traditions of, well, mainly of like the church, that the church is set forth. Just, just, his, just historically, throughout Historic the history of the church. Of the church, so long as they are subject to Scripture, obviously. Okay. Now that's what, obviously what would separate us from, say, the Catholic 
Roman Catholic right. Church is that they would place tradition. I mean, do on we the have level as can you give any examples of that tradition that you're referring to that we have? That we would have? Mm-hmm. Um, that you're saying is good. The way we do Lord's Supper, let's say. Okay. Um, the way that we would say have uh, reading reading scripture before the sermon. Um, just these things. I mean, I don't know that's commanded that you have to do that. But we have that tradition in place, and that's that's a right. long-held tradition of, right. of you know Reformed and Evangelical churches. Right. To, to That's good. Read the scripture before the sermon. To stand while we read scripture. Right. In reverence of the of the word of God. Right. Not that if you stop doing it, you're sinning uh-huh. <laughs> per se. But those are just traditions that we would hold to. That, that you know are not in not conflict. Bad. They're yeah. not conflicting with the word of God. Yeah. Maybe even like some that. of them are even deduced from the word of God. Standing oh. standing when the, the the word of God is being read. That's certainly a scriptural. You know, they did that in, you know, back in the Old Testament. They would stand as the Word of God. What's that? They did that with Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, you know, yeah, the reading of the law. You know, everybody stood. <laughs> and everybody wept, too. Is everybody ready to weep today? <laughs> uh, but I, I agree. I mean, we do have some some of those non-authoritative traditions, you know, like where, where does the concept of a pulpit come from? You know what I mean? I mean, I believe so strongly in the pulpit. I mean, you know, I had to beg to bring one into this church. I told the guy, I said, look, I need a pulpit. He's like, just use a music stand. I was like dying inside. I was like, this is like sacrilege. What are you talking about? I need a pulpit. You know what I mean? If it was up to me, I would. I would cement the pulpit to the church, immovable, fixed. You know, I would, I would nail it to the foundation of this building, you know, so that we can never move the word of God from the center. You know, it's a symbol. But that's not, you know, scripture. Don't take that as a chapter and verse. Would worship be a tradition? Certain aspects of worship can be become a tradition. Yeah, definitely. But the principles are there. You know what I mean? But I would contend that when Paul talks about tradition here, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, that what he's referring to there is not extra biblical tradition. I think the word there just is tantamount to the teaching of the apostles to the things that were handed down through oral transmission before they were inscripturated because he says, by word of mouth. So sometimes it came through word of mouth before it came through a written document. You know what I mean? But uh, paradosis in, 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 in the New Testament, I would say, refers to the teaching of the apostles, nothing more. It wasn't like they had this body of tradition that they appeal to outside of the doctrine of the apostles, outside of the teachings of Scripture, outside of the sayings of Jesus. No, they had, they had, a, they had no such tradition in that sense. And that's a Catholic error, you know. That's what Catholics think they did have. Yes, sir. Well, yeah, just mentioning Catholics, like what's <coughs> about that is you can challenge them because they use that text, you know, the traditions. But to ask them to present a single word that's not in Scripture that the apostles said at all. And there's nothing, you know, so yeah. anything they've come up with is just much later. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Do, but there's no evidence that the apostles said anything that God didn't preserve. Exactly. You know, so. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was just wondering if you looked at the etymology of paradosis, like where's that from? Where's the, where's the word from? Yeah. I don't know where the word is from, but the, the exact meaning of that just basically speaks of the content of instruction that has been handed down. That's the BDAG. The content of instruction that has been handed down, he says, either in teachings, commandments, or narratives. You know? And that would be consistent with being 
with everything that Scripture yeah, everything teaches. Scripture yeah, teaches. exactly. Exactly. Like men by lifting their hands without wrath and doubting in yeah. the New Testament, Old Testament, it was yeah. they would stand lifting their hands, or they, Moses with with Joshua and or Aaron and her holding his hands up, right. praying over the battle that Joshua was waging. You know those kind yeah. of things. And Paul is Paul is really addressing an early heresy here too, uh, that 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 almost made it necessary for him to appeal to that which was orally communicated to them very early on because in chapter 2 of Thessalonians, we know that there was a false teaching going around that some were prophesying, some were reporting that the day of the Lord had already come. You know what I mean? So he's refuting that early tradition of that teaching with his early teaching, even before it was written down. So, so um, you know, that just, you know, everything boils down again to the, your view of Scripture. Is this sufficient for everything that we need in this life? In terms of discerning God's will, in terms of, of knowing what God requires of us, and in terms of knowing who God is, do we need something from the outside? I mean, I don't think so. I think this is it. I think this is all that we need. And if we pound long and hard enough on this, on this word, I think it will yield for us whatever we're seeking, you know? We pray according to God's will. If we seek God in his word, I think that we will get the guidance that we need in decision making, right? So a lot of people say that, you know what I mean? Like I had a hard decision to make and the Bible just wasn't enough. I needed a word from the Lord or I wouldn't know what to do. You know what I mean? And I think the mistake, the error that's committed there is thinking that God's, that, that, that thinking that the way that they determine God's will is you know, I have to know exactly God's perfect will, you know, instead of his permissible will. You know what I mean? But I believe that God's will is only twofold, his will of command, his will of decree, okay? The things that are decreed are the things he doesn't reveal to us, you know, like what you're going to do tomorrow at work, you know what I mean? That's his decreed will. But his will of command is revealed to us. You better go to work tomorrow because, <laughs> you know, the Bible teaches that if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. So work is commendable. And I think what Scripture gives us then is wisdom, is enough wisdom to make life decisions. And, um, yeah, anybody, any questions or comments or anything regarding that? Because that's a big one, you know. A lot of people do kind of depend on some sort of esoteric experience in order to determine the will of God. I think Jason was first. Yeah, I was just going to say when someone should tell us that they are traditional slash conservative. I always try and back it up with what tradition and what are you trying to conserve? Because <laughs> yeah. we know, I mean, Mormons, I would say, are very mm -hmm. traditional, very conservative. But it's, yeah. the terms themselves are neutral unless I tell you what I'm trying to conserve right. or what my tradition is. That's so right. Jew is the same thing. Very traditional, very conservative, but they don't really mean anything unless I know what they're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, um, I heard someone preach a long time ago, and they said, I want to so be in the will of God that I don't even go to Walmart before praying. <laughs> what, what would you say about that? Well, I, just to make sure, just to make sure that going to Walmart was within God's will. Well, if you only got baked beans, you better get on to the store. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's right. Don't do that when I come over for dinner. Yeah. You, think that's too, you think that's too far on the other side of the road, you know? Like, well, of course. You really just... I mean, look, again, it's kind of tough, you know what I mean? But it's like, 
Sometimes, you know, I mean, sometimes a decision has to be made, you know what I mean? And you don't have a chapter and verse for it. You know, probably one of the classic examples of that is Archie Sproul tells a story that a decision needed to be made. He was either going to go move to Florida or he was going to move uh, to a different state. I think it was South Carolina or something. And he had no idea what decision to make. He had job offers and things like that. And uh, somebody had called him, a childhood friend had called him that was a believer and said that he, that God had given him a dream that he should go to Florida. And Archie Sproul made the decision according to that, <laughs> you know. I mean, can God, I mean, lead his people through things like that once in a while? I mean, I don't know. Even in marriage it's difficult to say that God can't, you know, when certain supernatural things happen. I mean, don't believe in the non-supernatural, you know what I mean? We're, I mean, Christianity is not naturalism. Christianity is not an anti-supernatural religion. We don't believe in a, in a world devoid of the Spirit of God, and we don't believe in a world devoid of God's direct intervention, do we? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's right. I mean, Archie, I mean, um, uh, uh, B.B. Warfield wrote a long thesis on miracles, you know what I mean, explaining the, the validity of miracles today, the, the direct contact with God today. Yes, sir? Um, not to take you that far off topic, but... What do we do with all Maybe the, I should have paused that part in the audio. With all the all the Muslim testimonies, like they'll be walking around the Kaaba and they'll they'll see see Jesus or they'll hear the voice of Jesus or they say somebody touched them and there's nobody around them and they turn around and and that's how they leave. I haven't, I haven't figured out yet what to make of those. Yeah, somebody asked me that at the Shepherds Conference. What I thought about that. Um, Tell them to go to Heritage Grace. Yeah. Uh <laughs> 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 you know I. I can't verify those things, uh, but I also can't negate that. You know, if Muslims are being saved, and reportedly this is happening, you know, Muslims by the hundreds are being saved through dreams. And let me say one thing about that, though, okay, and that's this, that I, even if that is happening, it's not as if they're receiving supernatural revelation. It's not like it's, it's out of nowhere. It's like, you know, you're, you're out in you know, Papua New Guinea, you've never even heard of of Jesus, and, and all of a sudden you have a dream that there's this Jesus, you know, that God reveals to you the name, the person, the identity. You know, Muslims have the identity of Jesus in the Quran. It's pronounced as heresy, but it's there. Jesus, the cross, dying on the cross, all of those, that he's the son of God, all of those concepts are there. Could it be that God is haunting Muslims with that those truths? Could it be? It's closing prayer. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people interpret their situations, you know, and that's when you leave scripture, the sufficiency of scripture. Like, I was watching videos of those uh, tsunamis coming through, and this one Muslim lady got caught in a tsunami, and it sucked her out. It pulled her way out. She was going to die for sure. You know, and she had this word and this peace that you know she was praying to Allah that if He would save her, she would know for sure that. Allah is true, and the Quran is true, and she survived. Somebody like came by on some boat and saved her, and so oh, yeah. to her, that was Allah revealing to her that you know yeah. the Quran is the way, Islam is the way, you know. So, if you're making judgment calls on anything, providence, other than scripture, yeah. yeah, or providence, I mean, you yeah. really, it's not trustworthy. Yeah, that's well, right. That's you, right. You get into the double predestination thing, then to, to yeah. there. I mean, she might have been marked out for destruction for believing, you know. <laughs> Wow, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. Um, 
Yeah, uh, double predestination. That's a subject Sorry, for man. a I subject mean, for another. I'm just saying for the revelation purposes. <laughs> that's I mean, if that's going to continue to harden our heart against the gospel. Obviously, Good. God is working yeah. in that providentially to for His glory, and we'll see that righteous and true are His judgments. Yeah, amen. You want to pray for us, Josh? Close us in prayer.